Welcome to Turnpikers, the show about the people who make up the Denver and Boulder tech scene. We're your hosts, Luke Beatty and Danny Newman. Information about this show is available at turnpikers.com and at turnpikers on Twitter. Welcome to this episode of Turnpikers, which is not called The Turnpikers. I've been learning from Courtney, our producer, that I've said The Turnpikers on a couple occasions, which I don't know whether that messes people up from a URL perspective or whatever, but I can wean myself from saying The Turnpikers. It's like The Pepsi Center versus Pepsi Center. It's the Facebook. Right. So on this episode, we have uh, John Levesay from uh, from Craftsy. Does anybody ever call it Simpos, or is that pretty much, that's a DBA? That's a DBA. Got it. Yep. Okay. Uh, and I think probably most of our audience knows about Craftsy and what Craftsy is all about. Um, but if you want to give everybody the sort of two-second um, description of, of what you guys are working on, and then we'll jump right in. Sure. I mean, I, our, our fundamental goal is to, you know, unlock um, creative expression and joy and we do that through um, long-form educational video around lifestyle hobbies, videos which we produce ourselves with the kind of the world's leading experts in their categories. And those categories range from traditional crafts of quilting, sewing, knitting, all the way into things like photography, cooking, and woodworking. So we produce um, long-form video sold as a la carte classes, but we also sell uh, supplies and materials that go along to bring those projects to life. Got it. So one of the reasons why Danny and I wanted to have you on was uh, obviously you're one of the people that I certainly look up to most in this community. So aside from that, when it gets to the subject material, you know, we one of the things that we talk about a lot here is just our really desperate need for sort of mezzanine level companies, companies at your stage that have raised a significant amount of money. I would say that significant amount of money on the on the Denver Boulder sort of scale, um, raised a you know a C round or a D round or something like that, and um, have continued to grow and have probably more than. 150 employees kind of thing. And you you guys fit squarely into that. Um, why do you think that kind of stage is meaningful for Denver and Boulder? I think it's meaningful for Denver Boulder to, to see companies kind of get to that escape velocity and create that critical mass for one of the reasons that we, I think we struggled early on, which was... When you get those companies, they spit off well-trained um, employees who have experience, who hopefully have had some, you know, um, financial success there as well, and then have the um, ability to kind of start out on their own or go to another startup. And so, I'm, you know, I, I believe it's a virtuous loop there. And, and I think early on, we you know, in looking for talent, there's plenty of engineering talent and um, production talent in Denver. There had not been a lot of scaled kind of consumer internet wins where there was copious amounts of marketing talent. And we always said, gosh, we wish we had a, a, a big a, a Facebook or an eBay where we could just poach people easily locally. And then about a year ago, we started noticing some of our own people getting taken. Um, and we thought, oh God, we're that company we wished existed. Yeah. From a, <laughs> right. But that's good. It, it's good for the community. It's always hard to see people 
hard to see people leave, but it's also exciting and that it's good for the community. So I think it, it lifts all boats to have some companies, both from a reputational factor of drawing investment dollars in and just the general ecosphere of talent, um, raising the level of talent. Yeah. We first met, uh, I think, when you guys were first kicking things off, maybe yeah. five almost six years ago probably now you guys were building a platform for education is the kind of the the crafting and the, is that something that kind of sparked uh because of this platform or was that your original intention or take us back to the beginning yeah i mean at the beginning i think we felt there was just a, a real void in quality online education the promise of online education was not being fulfilled you either when you went online to take education, and whether that was aspirational learning, corporate training, or distance learning from an academic perspective, you ended up with PowerPoints with a voiceover or kind of back of the classroom MOOC-style YouTube camera that was a what we felt was a second-class experience. So we wanted to build a platform where if we all think back to college or high school, your best classes were when the instructor acted as a facilitator and really... You learned as much from your fellow students and from the discussions as you did from a pure lecture form. And so we wanted to build a platform that you could consume uh, online education that was produced at high, consistent quality, audio, video, um, and, and great instructors. We didn't want to democratize the supply side, like get the best instructors and produce quality education, but then be able to consume the content asynchronously anytime you wanted, but be able to still ask the instructor questions and get a response. So that's kind of the the genesis of the idea from a platform perspective. What we discovered, because we didn't initially know, you know which direction we were going to take it, and we talked to some of the um, institutions of higher learning, both within Colorado and in other states, University of California, University of Michigan, um, and they all loved the platform. They thought it was really groundbreaking from a learning uh, outcomes perspective. And one of the answers we got from the university was, we love this. We want to do something with you. We have great ideas for this. We have a Board of Regents meeting in 18 months to discuss our 21st century um, technology play. Let's get back together. And at that point, we realized, wow, we're an angel-funded startup. We cannot predicate our success on waiting on higher learning to change. Um, and then, so we said, let's go toward aspirational learning. And we, we you know, kind of uh, produced classes across a range of, of, of topics. And um, we had a quilting class. I had received a quilt from my aunt months before and was pretty amazed at the technical elements of it. You never really as a guy who was never into quilting, never really took a look at it and realized the math, the skill, the creative kind of nuance that goes into it. So we did a quilting class and it it outsold everything else we had made. And so we started to kind of, started to harken back to the eBay experience of these perceived subcultures or niche hobbies, which aren't actually niche at all, they're huge. And quilting's a $3 billion domestic industry. And so, being in that position in the business, we made another quilting class, then we made a knitting class, and we really found that the, the visual element that video brings to how-to transcends a lecture or even what you can learn in a live class. Because in a live class, you, if you're in the second row, you can't, you can't see 
as well. So it, it just really struck a chord with with crafters. It, it transcended the quality of what was available for free or on DVD or or through books and magazines. And so, yeah, that's kind of how we tacked toward the the how-to. It, it fits video well. It fit, it fit our platform well. There was big, passionate. It's a long tail. Long tail, evergreen content, um, huge avidity. We, we, we often say that our, you know, of our 10 million registered users, these are, these are people who their hobby is, we call it a first paragraph hobby. They may say, you know, I'm Jane, I'm a mother, I'm a, from Wisconsin, and I'm a quilter. Or, you know, I'm Tom, I'm a photographer, and I, I live in Utah. You know, it's, they're identifiers, and, and it's an interesting difference. I think we get into circles in our own lives, where particularly in Silicon Valley or New York, someone says, so what do you do? Someone says, well, I'm a banker, or I'm in technology. And a lot of people in this world, in this country, someone says, so what do you do? They say, well, I'm a quilter, or I'm a biker, or I'm a skier. So it's, it's just that there's... Yeah. Uh, yeah, so that's kind of how we, we tacked toward that. Do you guys have it in your sort of long-term roadmap to be a course delivery system at some point that you provide to third parties? Like, is that still something that, you know, obviously the boards of regents don't operate at the same right. sort of speed of business that that a hotshot like you does? But uh, are, are you guys, is that something that you think about? Like, is white labeling it and turning it out to whomever? Yeah, I think we've, we've been approached by, interestingly, a couple. Uh, Whether it's universities or, or anybody else for that matter. Yeah, like I, I think it's, what we've done is gotten paid to build a platform by our users and test it and iterate it and, and refine it and make it better. And so when the, when, I think when the appetite and the, the, the kind of bureaucracy allows it um, at the academic level, we, we would definitely um, we would definitely consider that. Yeah, because I think it's it's given the you know I think about it a lot. I mean the the cost of of uh, you know there's there's schools that when I was there were were twelve thirteen grand a year that are now sixty five. Yeah. and and it's and you come out with a liberal arts degree, which I think makes you a better citizen, but Boy, if you could feather in a hybrid with the in-person university model with some some real workable quant and, skills. And like a, and, a Pearson kind of course delivery system doesn't look anything like yours. Mm -mm. Nor does Blackboard or Blackboard, yeah. they they pass for an EMS, but really it's a it's a curriculum and, and organization tool as opposed to a delivery. It's a people system. management yeah. process thing. Yep. So one of the things that's most interesting about Craftsy to me is, you know, I would put the world of intersection between content, commerce, and community as one of the things that I thought would be, have manifest itself into some pretty bankable playbooks like 10 years ago. And it has been glacial, you know? I mean, I think... One of the things I work on is selling movie tickets online, and people still don't buy movie tickets online. <laughs> and I, why that's not happening, I have no idea, because they rent them and watch them online, but they still want to go to the movie theater and wait in line, but they won't buy them. There are things like that that I don't think mankind has been able to sort of explain why they haven't come around that fast. 
what is going on with content commerce and community? I mean, I, I, I work a little bit in that world, but as you know, not nearly as much as, as you yep. do. And, you know, I think that the known problems around monetization of a lot of other content using ad models and subscription models has been problematic. So you'd think that would have also driven this to move faster. You guys are sort of, if anybody has been successful at it, you guys have. What is going on with that sort of? I, I think the reason it's something we grapple with a lot that it hasn't been done is it's organizationally really difficult. Like we, we, we often joke, God, life would be easier if we were just a content producer. Or, or we were just an e-commerce physical. You, you have a, we have a media company that's producing thousands of hours of finished, you know, high-quality content. We have a, a procurement and e-commerce team that's, you know, taking inventory, buying goods, fulfilling at scale, um, and then a big technology org. And it's, I think it's just a, I think it's really hard. From a, from just an org design and um, structure to kind of have that many kind of disparate uh, functional groups and creative types versus quants and so at least that's the that's what we've experienced is it's it's quite hard and I and I think there's a fine line between uh, some of the instantiations I've seen of content and commerce. They veer really fast toward a ShamWow infomercial, and and it's people aren't um, people are smart, and if they know the only reason they'll they'll smell it out that if they're watching content, but the true premise is this is an extended P ninety X commercial, I, you're trying to sell me something, and so it, in a non value add way, and so striking that balance of of a uh, legitimately compelling content that then segues <clears throat> into into a, a call to action or a, or a uh, inference of buying comp, you know physical goods it's kind of an art and science and and then so not only in the presentation and the the manifestation of it but also the execution of it from a data structure of okay you know and we're not there, but we're trying, which is, okay, you've taken this class, you watched only these three lectures of that class, you're keenly interested in this element, therefore the next email you get um, will be around this type of commerce. Because you just bought a class, so we don't want to try and sell you another class right away because you're not even through that one. So how you feather the two in in your in your day-to-day Kind of life cycle marketing is is a it's it's hard, I guess. Maybe that's why it's it hasn't been done. Yeah, and I can't imagine you guys having, especially with where you started, having the commerce and the physical goods as even part of the uh, kind of thought at the beginning. So you guys brought that in at like right as you were starting with quilting and some of the other early stuff. Yeah, we tested into it after about two years. Okay. We we would get messages. Uh, from from users and, and some of them are random. Like, I love the shirt that the instructor's wearing. Where can I find that? Like, well, I, I don't know. We'll have to ask her. But then, oftentimes, it was more specific. Of where do I get that tool? Where do I get that that yarn? Why is she using that kind of yarn? Verse, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's hundreds of different gauges, weights, fiber content. So, 
we just started um, through our Facebook clubs putting up kind of deal of the day type, will anyone buy this from us? Um, and we would just fulfill it out of the office. And, oh, wow, we sold 200 of them in an hour and a half. That seems to work. Let's, let's order a little more. And, and, and then you need to, as it starts to grow bigger, you need a whole different skill set of other who understand logistics right, and purchasing right, yeah. and import-export. And it, so it, it changes the whole dynamic of who you're hiring. Yeah, that, no, that seems like a very, very uh, yeah. kind of whole separate part of the business that yeah. probably can uh, yep. ultimately outpace uh, some of the others. Well, it's a, it's a bigger market. And, yeah. and this is where, you know, of the $30 billion kind of domestic annual what would be considered arts and crafts, which includes paint and anything that goes in. That doesn't count photography or cooking or woodworking. Um, 90% of the spends on consumable goods and equipment. And so there's very little, particularly from a customer acquisition perspective, search intent around classes. People don't, most people don't, some do, but wake up in the morning and say, today's the day I'm going to search Google for a class on Italian mother sauces, but they will say, I need a cutting board or I need a ladle. Or, and so mm-hmm. hopefully you can use the two to kind of dry, drive people back and forth, which if you have a single cost of acquisition for a customer, but you can garner a share of wallet through both the con- paid content and the, and the commerce. And it's, it's easier in some categories than others. Like we don't sell uh, commerce in photography. It's low margin. Consumer electronic, yeah. um, that's a dangerous game to get into, and we're not going to win there. So we, we only sell content for f- photography. And what has been your ability, present and future, to get beyond arts and crafts, including the photography and the woodworking and all of that? Yeah, I mean, I, I want to be a musician. I guess I've been playing instruments for a while, but to me, music is, a, is one that I have a passion for that I think would be amazing. Um, right now I don't take lessons because I don't have time and if I could do it at home particularly through an interactive experience it'd be great the the capital required to scale new categories because you can't really launch a category effectively with one class you need you need to have follow on classes for repeat purchase to justify the cost of acquisition so you've got to scale a catalog and you have to have a marketing team that's focused on a whole new set of channels and dynamics. And so I think we're, we feel like we're still scratching the surface on our, our the categories we're in, but that once those become, you know, um, are spitting off cash, you can then fund new categories. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've just, we just didn't want to get ahead of ourselves on expanding categories. And international is the same way. 30% of our digital content's bought from outside the U.S. Now, 60% of that, 30% is English-speaking countries. But there's 10% of our total content's bought from non-English-speaking countries. And people are just muscling through it in English, and so, gosh, you, you start getting fired up of we should be producing content in German and in Portuguese. You know, we have a big outsized Brazilian market for some mm-hmm. reason, particularly in the cakes and sweets categories. It's funny to see which countries gravitate toward. You know, our German audience loves very utilitarian, kind of 
uh, making a shirt, making a chair, making, whereas, you know, other countries, it's more food and cuisine. So, um, yeah, kind of along the lines of your question about licensing the platform, I feel like adding new categories and then ultimately producing in foreign language is just something that I think we'll, we'll ultimately, hopefully get to. What is the makeup of the Craftsy employee profile? Like, what percent of your people are sort of managing video production, building the platform, talent acquisition, you know, uh, biz ops kind of? How do you sort of divide your your crew? Because I know you have a, yep. it's a unique business because you've got a really a lot yeah. more diverse collection of people than most. How many employees do you guys have? So we have 200 in Denver and then 45 in Indianapolis at our fulfillment warehouse. Um, if you look at the Denver office, I'd say of the 200, it breaks out 15 customer support between marketing, probably 40, production, which is content ed design, filming, instructor acquisition, all the way through editing, probably 50 people there. Our e-commerce group, is around, which procures and sells all the physical goods, 20-ish. And then product and engineering is probably 35 or 40. And then finance, six. Yeah, yeah. HR yeah. slash people, four or five. What about... I mean, uh, that may have added up to like 300. I don't know. I was just yeah, kind of pretending not, I was yeah, walking through the office. only worked there a couple days a week. And <laughs> um, the... Uh, and your vi- are you, are, is all your video production done on site, or you do have multiple sort of production studios and yeah, so post production? We, we have uh, uh, out at the taxi center. Um, we have we have five studios out there, um, and then we have a cooking studio right here in downtown Denver that we kind of luckily stumbled upon. It was a cooking school that they had built out, and it didn't didn't do well, and they weren't paying their rent, and we ended up taken over the lease and it's it's already pre-lit it's it's beautiful it's perfect so we so with those five at taxi the cooking studios so six studios and then we'll probably produce 10 percent of our classes out in the world um we we filmed five classes in london um a lot of the great kick decorators are there um sometimes people are just woodworking obviously we don't do on site <laughs> we don't have the gear um, photography, most of those are outdoors on site. Mm-hmm. And so, and some people are just more comfortable in their own kitchen or their own studio. Um, the problem there is the cost is different. We got to travel a crew, you got barking dogs, you've got other phones ringing. There's sound is the enemy <laughs> yeah. when it comes to production. And what drives your business? Is it mostly quality of instructors? Is that probably the, the number one thing, the way it is in any other sort of educational environment? Yeah, I, I think that comes first. You, you've got to have a good teacher. And, and historically, we've, we've a few times selected a, a media celebrity um, who's great on camera, the looks of an anchor person, and then they can't teach. And, and it doesn't go well. Um, an instructor or, or students will call it out. Um, and so it, it all starts with the, with the instructor, but then also with really thoughtful content design with the instructor, because often, and, and our instructors are great, but sometimes they show up and they want to deliver 
their kind of opus on the topic, and it would be an 11-hour class, and it's simply not feasible. To, to You know, you want to have two to three learning outcomes per lesson, six or seven lessons, really kind of, so yeah, the instructor and then the learning outcomes and then the quality of the of the video production. Are the, are, the, are the instructors built into this sort of incentive structure? So, I mean, are they out there promoting their own products? Promoting the daylights out of their... Is that in their best interest, and is that it, part of the model? It totally is. Um, some are better than others, depending how socially media savvy they are, how much they're out on the road, how, what kind of email list they have. Um, but yeah, we pay an increment. So for all of our instructors, they're compensated on a, a revenue share of, of, of sales. Mm-hmm. So it behooves Exclusively? them. Exclusively? Uh, or is it a mixed? Some of... We we do advances yep. just simply because we feel like you're coming out to film, you're working in pre-production. We want you have to prepare. Yeah, so we pay a, we pay in advance, um, and then they have a revenue share. But if they sell the class through trackable links, um, and we have an interface for them where they can create links, track their sales, um, they get paid a, a higher percentage. And in fact, if they're kind of between classes or only have one class they can sell other instructors' classes, too, and, and get a rev share there. So, yeah, it's been a great a great channel for us. What's kind of the quantity of some of the, the instructors? Are they producing these things on a quarterly basis, monthly basis? So I think we have 1,300 classes live now. I would say we have a total of about 800 instructors. So there's a some have done as many as five, some have done two, but we have a lot of one- Mm-hmm. kind of one single class instructors. So I think the most we have through one instructor over a four-year period is probably six six classes. It all depends how they do. Yeah, um, yeah. And what the breadth of, of skill is of the instructor to be able to kind of um, you know, d- diverge into different nuance of the, of the, within the category. Okay. In a world like the craftsy world, what constitutes a highly active consumer. Is that somebody that takes two classes or a class a week? If you picked like your top segment, whatever, I'm sure you guys have yeah, that, yeah. those KPIs all lined yeah. up. Like what is somebody that's that's active? So, I mean, when we look at our- Or code, is that, at, or let me- Oh yeah, yeah. Thing. Or is that can also be like, they don't necessarily keep taking classes, but they keep ordering e-commerce through you and gear and all that, or how, what, so what does yeah. that look like? I mean, the dis- the the kind of distribution is interesting. I mean, a, around over half, well over half of people who buy a single class buy a, a second class. Um, about 68% of people who buy two classes buy a third, 74% who buy three buy a fourth. So once someone's in and once we can kind of get people beyond that, you know, from kind of consideration to understanding to purchase, it becomes a, a really a nice. It's interesting though. I think I think our threshold is the ten or more, like people who've bought more than ten classes, and there's a a pretty big group of those people. Yep. Yeah, you know, we have some. We have, you know, some people who've bought over seven or eight hundred classes. I mean, they. It's their. So they've bought over half of the classes that you have. Yeah, across all categories. I mean, it's... God, they must be so smart. 
They yeah. have some awesome skills. They have some awesome crafts. Yeah. King of craft. Yeah. Dude, King of craft. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's incredible. That's yeah. a re- that must be really good because oh, if you can get people to do something that they've never, because obviously you're getting people to do some craft they've never even, probably even thought they would want to do. Yep. But they, they like, or they're downloading and reselling that content somewhere. That's unique. I never thought about that because you're, you're basically then sort of Introducing eclipsing it. the idea of I like a thing. Yeah. I'm into woodwork or I'm into you know quilting or I'm into pastry chef sort of things. And you're saying I'm into craftsy classes. That's exactly right. right. It becomes I mean, that's a like hobby the dream come true of the media company, right? Which yep. is that I, I don't I, I, the... I, 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 I don't care what show it is. I just want to watch Fox shows. Yeah. Right? Like no one's ever been able to do that. So you should really trumpet that a lot, which yeah. is most, most people. And, just... and you see the much like I saw it at eBay where there's the category of first activation will often dictate where people will kind of go Land. from there. So if if, if you bought a a Blu-ray player off of eBay in 2005, chances are you're going to start buying Blu-ray discs as well. And so we see, like, all quilters need to know how to sew. Um, and so there's nice kind of crossover there. Um, knitting and crochet are close. Um, and everyone cooks. And so you can kind of steer people through through marketing to, to eventually, after a certain point, branch beyond their their category. Have you, as a as an eBay guy, have you have you thought about doing automotive? Because that buttered that buttered a lot of bread over at eBay. It sure did. Um, yeah, I remember when we sold our first car on eBay in like fall of nineteen ninety nine, and it was I still couldn't believe it that someone would yeah. buy a car. And and you know it's a fourteen billion dollar year gross merchandise sales business on eBay. Um, it's crazy. I I like automotive a lot. It's a, it's men, um, which means th- we're not always prone to read directions like we should and just kind of go at it. Um, yeah. As I learned last weekend when I took the kids out with a drone and yeah. saw it fly into the ether and lost it. Um, it was a big dad fail. But yeah, I didn't read the directions properly. <laughs> um, so or, or at all, maybe. Yeah, yeah. No, not really. <laughs> <laughs> it just seemed pretty yeah. easy. Yeah. Uh, I, work, I, I have a phone. I work in computers. Yeah, how hard could it be? Um, I took a class on crafts. Yeah, I can fly this baby. <laughs> it's actually a, cl- a category we've looked at is is robotics and and kind of a lot of the maker. That all these pretty machi- sweet. Yeah, these machines. We're, we have a deal now with uh, with a company called Cricket that yeah. makes what are these essentially CNC lathes for. Paper for paper, but <laughs> yeah. you can also do you know uh, cake decorating things and, and fabric and templates, and it's it's pretty. But but the, much like Microsoft Excel, the average user uses about five percent of what they can, and so you know Cricket's a huge fan of education um, for their current machine, and, and their users love it. Um, yeah, we I could have used the drone class. <laughs> Uh, talk to us uh, a little bit before we wrap up about sort of what your analysis of the overall weather and climate of the Denver Boulder experience in the last uh, five years and sort of where we are now as a Silicon Valley person. Yeah, I, I mean, I, there's so many advantages to being here. Um, I, I think 
cost of doing business from a from a rent perspective, you know, if you hit scale, starts to be meaningful. Um, you know, the I think the talent pool here in certain functions, as we talked about um, earlier, is every bit as good as 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 elsewhere. Um, one of our early investors was from the Valley and, and said, you, you're going to have to eventually move this to California because you, you're going to have to for the engineering talent. Um, and, you know, two of my co-founders were engineers. And they're like, no, we don't, we don't think so. And a year later, he called me and said, I need to open up an office in Denver, Boulder, because um, our engineer, I came in on a Monday and nine of my engineers were gone to Facebook. Yeah. And so... You know, that's a major problem for startups, and you you don't right now have that kind of poaching. Retention is a crazy problem out there. Yeah, and, and there's just a real mercenary. I mean, to the, to the point where people are hedging bets from an equity perspective where oh, they'll yeah. work two years at LinkedIn. Okay, I'm staked there. Now I'm going to go to Pinterest for two well, years. I mean, it, and people's vest, it, companies' vesting schedules are sort of – known socially as, oh, yeah. as 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 dates that people just have in their heads yeah. that don't even work at those companies. Yeah. I so, mean people people know those calendars in the valley, yeah. especially yeah. if you're a recruiter. Yeah. And so that's a that's been an advantage here. Um I, I, I really like one of the best things about being part of this community to me is that none of the constituents that I've met yet view it as a zero sum game. Like you know, I, I've never reached out to somebody for advice, whether it's you, Luke, or, or Eric Rosa, or, or other people who haven't said, yeah, let's get together and talk. What do you want to talk about? It's not, gosh, I don't want to help that guy because he could eventually take some of my employees. And so from the, from the business community all the way up in many ways through the, the mindset of our governor and the way the investors think about the area, it's a... I think we all feel like we're part of something and building something, and and uh, and, and and it's a you know we'll, we'll leave it better than we started it. Yeah. Um, and and that's a good thing. Um, I, I think the the tough part to some degree has been sometimes when you have a specific role that you can't find here, um, and you go out of market to get it, um, particularly trying to get someone from the valley. Uh, it's hard to to get some people to move here, um, and you got to catch but, them at the right age and right. the right life stage. But my experience is that I, I agree with that. My experience, though, is I I'm not entirely sure that there is a place that's not the size of a you know thumbtack right. that you can get people to move to easier. Exactly. I mean, no, no, I've got friends with startups in Dallas, Houston, yeah. St. Louis, St. Paul, Minnesota. I mean, yeah. they don't even try to get somebody to no. move there. No, I, mean, I mean, here it's like at least you have a shot at it. You, you do have a shot. And, and but to your point, it has to do with life stage. and. Yeah, I mean, I'll look on LinkedIn and find someone, wow, that's a perfect fit. I'll then go on Facebook and look. And if I see a baby, I'm like, I may have you. Because <laughs> people right. are suddenly doing the San Francisco math of they've got a you know a young kid and it's hard there and but but if someone's got teenage kids and their wife has a great job or their husband has a great job and they're they're in a home and it's hard to get people to and, and that may be true everywhere but you're right it's we're 
we're not asking people to move to Akron here. This yeah. is a, this is a growing. And I think it's one you know city. when we look at our sort of what is our competitive set? Maybe Seattle. That mm-hmm. may be a little bit upmarket from us, but but Austin. certainly Austin. Um, and I would say Boston. I mean, yep. it's a much bigger town, but it's it's sort of on the same on level. The, in the yep. same sort of mold and um, and 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 other places. And yeah. we've had better luck recruiting from actually from some of those towns. Yeah, and Chicago than we have from the Valley because people there are such in the echo chamber and believe it's the center of everything. And, and don't get me wrong, there's a lot of great stuff going on out there. But I, I And this comes back to your original question about having a, a couple more big wins where people are like, wow, it can happen there yeah. and I can have a better lifestyle. And, and, and that's the other thing, though, that I would say has been, it's been challenging to some degree. I, is the, a lot of people do move here specifically for lifestyle. That is the reason. Um, and, and I think anytime you do a, a startup, particularly struggling to, to gain scale, that can't necessarily be a number one priority. Yeah. There's gotta be a balance. And in your free time, there's a lot more accessible here than there would be. But you know, I think sometimes from a, from a civic recruiting perspective, you go to events and we, we beat the drum about craft breweries and the mountains are an hour away. And I think it's got to be more be part of a great company, mm-hmm. um, learn, be part of something special. Um, and the lifestyle goes without saying. Right? Yeah, I, I think you can't. I think you also you can't have the luxury of retention and some of the other luxuries that we have without it. Right. Because yep. it's like if the, the same people who want to work 24 hours a day and their job is their life are also the people that we're not going to get. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So uh, th- those are the people that, to your point about a LinkedIn search, those are also the people who are probably just happy in, in Manhattan. Yeah. You know, and, so and it's, it and is and kind of a... And I think there's so much mythos around startups and business in general that you have to be there till two in the morning. Because people inherently sandbag their work. Um, it, it may mean you don't have a coherent roadmap. If you're there consistently to two in the morning and there's atrophy of performance because of, you know, personal life suffering, yeah. that you just don't get as good at things. I, I, I think, and that's one of the things I've liked about starting a, a business kind of not as a 23-year-old where I would have thought I can do anything and we're going to try a hundred things. You know, one of the things we always talk about in our planning meetings is let's make a list of what we're going to do, but let's also make a list of what we're not going to do. Yeah. And that's put up on the wall, published. That means no pet projects, no messing about with this because we're just not going to do it. Yeah. And I don't think I would have had that perspective or discipline yeah, <laughs> 10 I, I, years yeah. ago. Yeah. And yeah. I think it's also, you know, what I say is, you need to be able to work till two o'clock in the morning, but you also need to be able to a week later leave at two o'clock in the afternoon on four straight days and, and not right? get the stink eye from people thinking you're a slacker. Right, like yeah. it's 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 not the uh, it's not the endless commitment. It's the flexibility. Yep. Right, where it's guess what? This is a week where we're all here till two o'clock in the morning. Yeah. But 
hopefully next week we'll all be out of here exactly. at noon and we can yep. ski half day or whatever. Yeah, exactly. So I think it's uh, I think that that often gets mixed, which is that you know there's this incredible sort of. Uh, and I've actually always, I've always been a, I need you to be in the office kind of guy. I don't need you to be in the office all the time. But I'm a kind of guy, if I'm going to spend money on office space, and I want people, engineers, engineering together, yep. I, I believe in that. But I, but I definitely agree with what you're saying. I think it's not that we need you to be able to work till 2 o'clock in the morning every day. It's that we need to be able to work till 2 o'clock in the morning when we need to work till 2 o'clock yep. in the morning. Yeah. God help us. And the in office, <laughs> yeah, no right. kidding. And the in office... It's a, it's a constant debate. I think people, depending on the function, if it's a discrete task and there's a measurable deliverable, you're like, you weren't in the office, but this is done and it's right. This code works and it's, then it's easier. It's, it's other positions where there's more kind of fungible, like it's t longer cycle, tough to measure. It's hard to know sometimes what the heck people are doing. Right. And... There's what? some people who are just so inherently motivated, they crank at home. I, I can't work at home. Like, I, I get distracted. I need to be in the office. Yeah. It's just hey, I think that, I, I'm trying to think of the most efficient way of saying this. I think culture matters, and I don't think you can have remote culture. Yeah. And I think, I've, I, in my experience over the last 20 years, it's like, I feel like, the number one thing that employees complain about are culture things, you know? Is there food in the office? I mean, all these kinds of things. And, but then there's also this whole sort of like working independently, independent hours, do I need to be in the office, all that sort of stuff. And I'm not entirely sure you can have both. Right, and I feel like lots of times I, I, I when I'm when I'm meeting with people about these things, I'm like, well, I just had to meet with these people who don't want to be in the office, <laughs> right? So it's like I can't, you know, we can't do both. And yeah. I mean, we're all real busy, so I can't create a custom work experience for every single employee right. as much as I'd like to. This is not a uh, salon or anything like that, so <laughs> no. I can come up with everybody's spa agenda. But it's. I do think it's hard to do both, right? It's hard it to say, hard. let's create a culture and let's create these experiences everybody wants and then also not have people coming into the office. It's I, I think a lot of times, and I think back to when I was a younger employee and got disgruntled and, and over you know, things that were, in retrospect, sophomoric, you latch on to the cultural stuff of, of food or time in office, but what, you, what really, what people really care about and why they come to a startup or a young company is to be heard and do work that makes a difference. And if they feel they're being marginalized, particularly as it grows or, or, or starting to do things that don't matter as much, the, the disgruntledness manifests itself in cultural woes, but what yeah. they're really saying is I'm not being heard, I'm not being appreciated. Um, and, and it's, and that's where I, I think the focus, you know, it's good managers um, to, to. Yeah, I, I think it's good managers, but I also think it's, I mean, I, and this is, I've been having, we've been having a lot of conversations about this recently, so it's sort of a topic du jour for me, but I also, as somebody who's just about to turn 46 years old, I never ever, I mean, I've never been to an awesome party that was organized by my boss. 
No. And every awesome thing that ever happened at whatever office I was either a participant in or running or anything in between was very much a bottom-up experience. So I have this real aversion to when people come to, to me and they say they're expecting me to be organizing these things. I'm like, do you really want a Christmas party organized by me? Like, <laughs> like that will be a terrible Christmas party. <laughs> And so no, it's people smell it's, it out as manufactured fun. Right. So it's like I always say to them, I'm like, you are the people that you have been looking for to organize yep. ping pong, golf, beer, food situation at work, all these sorts of things. Like yeah. I, I think that it's really sort of a cheap kind of concept to go to the leadership of something and ask them to organize that yeah. or ask them why that's not being delivered to them. Because I never I, I never wanted that. And I can't imagine ever wanting that, you know? But I don't think it, I think it's a people's inclination a lot of times to say, so Danny, what, you know, what, what is, what are we doing for, on the culture side of this office? I'm like, yeah. uh, if you're asking your boss for that, that's an indication to your point of it being a, a bigger problem. Because yeah. if I'm, if I'm coordinating, if I'm the Julie McCoy of this whole sh cruise ship, it is going to be <laughs> not particularly, in we're going to be doing crafty stuff all day long. <laughs> um, you know what I mean? Like it's not going to be that. No, so I, I, always, I think it's, I think that's sort of a, a good indicator that you're, that you have a little bit of a problem if people are coming to you and asking for those things. Yeah. I, mean, I, I think the whole, it comes back to this. I think people read blogs about, parties that Google had or someone had, and then it's this infantilization of, well, I give me that. Serve that up to me. That should be that part of culture. the culture. It's not culture. It, it, culture, to your point, is is organic. It's eight people on a Thursday it's going what, out. That's and, what they did. That's yeah. their yeah. culture. Yeah. 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 So it's, it's strange. So tell us about how people can get in touch with you. If you have any needs, this is obviously a good time. I know you always... Tell me about the different people that you might be looking to hire. Yeah. So if there's anything, how do people get in touch with you? What do you want people to get in touch with you about? Yeah, people can get in touch with me about anything. I'm just john at craftsy.com. And, and uh, you know, I think we're always on the lookout for talented, intrinsically motivated people who want to be part of something special that, as we discussed, kind of spans a, a broad range of, of disciplines within a startup world from media to marketing to technology. I think in particular, you know, we're always on the lookout for great marketing minds and folks who understand content marketing and customer acquisition. Yeah. yeah. That's it's. I mean, I'm sure we're that's not the name of the game. If you have the people signing up for as many classes as they do, it's it's all about new buyers. And it's you know, I don't think there's any startups that would say that's not their biggest. Yeah. Challenge. Well, maybe Groupon. I mean, they got them all in, and then they yeah. went away. But, but it's, um, we'd love to have the retention problems, right? Yeah. 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 Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on. Thank it's you really guys for having me. Awesome. This was fun. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks for listening to Turnpikers, recorded at Postmodern Company in downtown Denver. More information on this show is available at turnpikers.com and at turnpikers on Twitter. Reach out with questions and recommend future guests. 